Oh, hi there. You've caught me thumbing through my dog-eared copy of James Joyce's Ulysses, one of my favorite books that I've definitely read. Here at Seattle Sucks, we like to produce content. And our freaks produce a lot of content. About once a month, they spit out some content that either doesn't have to do with Seattle directly or isn't about the uh, hard-hitting, as-it-comes-out news cycle that you've come to expect from the Seattle Sucks program. Not being ones to waste content, though, we've decided to start releasing this material under the Mechanical Freak Presents label. Those who are on our Patreon stream will get this content about a week earlier because you're hogs and you need it. Then, once you've lapped up all the slop, we'll go ahead and give a little to the rubes out there who are just coasting on our free channel, never giving anything back. Our first episode and... Mechanical Freak Presents is going to be an interview with friend of the show, Marianne Henderson, who is going to tell us a little bit about the White Plague. And no, not the White Plague you're thinking of. This one is tuberculosis. Anyways, let's go ahead and sit back, let the freaks do their job, and get that sweet, sweet content. Thank you for that lovely intro, Brian. Um, I'm here with uh, Mary Ann Anderson, a uh, friend of the podcast. She was on the very special Texas Sucks <laughs> Patreon episode. Well, that's not going to look good for me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about... Uh, you made that a Patreon episode? You made people pay to listen to <laughs> all our all our worst content is on patreon <laughs> um, there's also a patreon episode of a bunch of us just drunk on the boat uh singing claudarity forever so uh just another fun Ooh. thing for people wow. to find wow uh, but yeah uh we're here to have a little bit more of a serious chat about uh you know respiratory illnesses uh and the public health response but not the respiratory illness that you're thinking of. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm here with Marianne because uh, while a uh, doctoral student at the University of Washington, uh, you wrote a dissertation on uh, tuberculosis control in the city of Seattle during the progressive era. I wrote most of a dissertation. Honestly, more than anybody (laughs) should write. (laughs) Uh, official position of me and maybe Marianne, uh, don't don't go to uh, graduate school. No, people. don't go to graduate school. Yeah. <laughs> just, say, just say no. <laughs> just say no, exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, 
we obviously uh, were friends and stuff when you were writing this, and so I was privy to a lot of the fantastic details that you were digging up. So and many. one of the things I thought was super interesting, and you know, maybe it's a good jumping off point, is this idea that in the late 18th and early 19th century, the tuberculosis was uh, quite the fad. Yeah, um, it was really popular amongst a, a certain set to, um, as they called it, be tubercular, to um, to have tuberculosis, to present with the symptoms of tuberculosis. Um, it was the heroin chic of <laughs> the late 18th and early 19th century. Yeah, well, and, and heroin chic, right, is, is apt, right? Because people are literally trying to make themselves look ill as if they were tubercular, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rene and Jean Dubois, two of the sort of uh, initial writers of um, a book on tuberculosis, both the sort of culture and um, history of the sort of scientific progression of the disease, who wrote in the 1950s, uh, they describe... Uh, the early romantics and that's romantics with a capital R right mm-hmm. so our not, not the band m- not the band <laughs> okay. so our Mary Shelley's right our Lord Byron mm-hmm. John Cates all these folks um, they and their crew were actually just sort of really mystified by tuberculosis um, as they saw it from their their somewhat privileged position right as oftentimes members of uh, the upper middle class to to really ruling class for some of them. Um, tuberculosis was a romantic disease. Um, so from the aesthetic of the disease, uh, which especially for women left them pale, thin, willowy, if you'll say, uh, that was seen as, as sort of a beautiful look at the time to, of course, for them, right, the idea of the romantic tragedy of death and particularly death at a young age. Um, the idea that there was something romantic, wistful in not having lived a full life, uh, but also because of oftentimes your isolation due to having tuberculosis, um, a life lived alone in contemplation as they saw it so the idea that you um you know spent days sitting looking out on the moors and and contemplating life and love uh writing about it Cates himself wrote many poems about uh about tuberculosis one of them sort of embodying tuberculosis as his lover um who both lures him and other men to their deaths, uh, but also something that he's chasing. Um, Cates's parents died of tuberculosis. He ultimately died of tuberculosis. <laughs> um, so yeah, you have this this sort of strange phenomena of these young romantic writers, thinkers, uh, at least for some of them, really viewing what was a quite horrific disease. Um, as something romantic uh, for for some even something to acquire so it was actually a fad at the time for young women to suck on lemons as a way to uh, try to curb their appetites and and allow them to achieve this again that sort of willowy and pale frame um, so you know thinking about the politics of, of the body and desirability and 
tuberculosis is a desirable aesthetic at the time. Yeah, and for people kind of having a hard time picturing this, uh, a personal favorite of mine, uh, Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, is based off of a very yeah, famous uh, opera or whatever from from this time period, uh, where the heroine is, you know, tragically dying of tuberculosis, right? And it's about the again, it's portrayed a very romantic light, right? Uh, and we kind of get get that little glimpse into it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we see, you know, even in that movie is a great representation, right? A, a very pale, mm-hmm. delicate Nicole Kidman with her gentle <laughs> <laughs> coughs into a lace handkerchief with yeah. just the sort of scant amount of blood mm. um, as sort of this romantic portrayal of, of what it was like to have and to die from mm-hmm. tuberculosis. Um, the reality is much grosser. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, maybe it's a good time to sort of pivot into that reality because while, uh, you know, guys with na- with Lord and their names like Lord Byron might have been uh, thinking it was romantic, uh, a couple of German immigrants just hanging out in London took a slightly different uh, perspective, right? So uh, tuberculosis plays a big role in, uh, like, Engels' condition of the working class in London, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and just to to give the romantics a little bit of credit as we sort of pivot to talking about Marx and Engels, um, they do actually, some of them get it together. So by the the mid uh, 19th century, you actually have romantics um, whose movement, you know, about feeling about interest in the commonplace, which is a sort of huge aspect of the Romantic period, is um, moving away from sort of the grandiosity to life instead to focus on the everyday. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually forces for for many of our Romantics by the mid-19th century, forces them to look at the working class as well. Forces them to think about, well, what is more everyday than what's happening to these working people around us in the cities. Um, They're forced to begin to actually sort of deal with the horrors of, of industrial capitalism as they're starting to see it, right? They, Mm -hmm. they don't name it in the same ways that Marx and Engels will. Um, And yet what they begin to see is that tuberculosis is not all that romantic. Instead, it's this Mm -hmm. disease that is killing uh, children and killing mass members of the working class who were jammed in awful living conditions, forced into terrible working conditions. Uh, and so the romantics, you know, are also well known at this time. Um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, William Blake, for writing um, poetry, writing stories about the conditions of the working class. And mm-hmm. in those, they also begin to shift their own sort of thinking and politics away from romanticizing tuberculosis. And it's due to a lot of what uh, Marx and Engels are going to describe mm-hmm. in Capital and in the condi- on the condition of the working class. Yeah, and uh, if you go into uh, Marx's Capital, right, he reproduces these life expectancy tables for various occupations, right, that are being presented to Parliament as part of these uh, investigations into factory conditions. And it really is, like, shocking to see, you know, I think, like, the life expectancy for bakers is, like, 35. And, like, once they get into the trade, they're expected to, you know, he's, like, a significant number of dead within 10 years. <laughs> I mean, 
really kind of amazing uh, stuff uh, yeah. to the point that the diseases they get, right, start to be named after their trades, right? Because tubercul- yeah. the term tuberculosis isn't necessarily in at this point, or they don't even necessarily know even if that's what it is. Right? No. Um, the terms that you have flying around uh, for sort of the wealthier, the term thesis. With Im- a impossible. It begins P-H-T with a P. H-T <laughs> to start that one off. <laughs> which I think goes back to ancient Greece. It does, right? yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. why it's spelled stupid. Which tuberculosis is one of the oldest known diseases uh, in the world. It's been infecting yeah. people, you know, since ancient times. We have evidence mm. of um, the bacterium in people's bodies that they've found from... Mm-hmm all the way back into the BC age. So yeah, this is as a, a Greek um, description of what's happening. But yeah, as you were saying, uh, for workers and for the folks who are interested, like Marx and Engels are, in describing what's going on with workers, uh, the terms they use to talk about tuberculosis and other diseases are oftentimes tied to um, the working conditions. So potter's mm-hmm. asthma becomes mm-hmm. a big um description used to describe tuberculosis um, and in it's describing the conditions that potters are dealing with in um, in the shops that they work in um, <clears throat> but it's not obviously just potters so Ingalls uh, describes the conditions in the factories um, in particular describing that for milliners for lace makers for dressmakers uh, who work in closed, unventilated spaces, hunched over for long periods of time. They're dealing with disease. Um, talking, too, about cotton and flax spinning mills, um, where the air is filled with, as Engel says, fibrous dust, which produces chest affections, especially among workers in the carding and combing rooms. So that's where you're dealing with very loose, thin fibers that you're trying to uh, align and ultimately get ready to spin into thread. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's even worse actually in places where they're doing wet spinning, which is putting water onto those those fibers to spin them into yarn. Uh, those are often run by children who are being covered in water all day long in <laughs> cold, clammy yeah. conditions. So there's both cotton fiber in the air they're covered in water um and so Engels describes the sort of racking noisy breathing and coughing that is Mm -hmm. um common in workers in these factories by the time that they're in their 20s or early 20s that their breathing has been altered so significantly so what we're talking about here too right is is environmental asthma people who did not have asthma who are acquiring asthma through the conditions of their work yeah and i mean the to the extent of how widespread this is you know again looking at these uh factory reports that are coming from mining districts uh you know he has this thing uh miners as all too well known suffered in some of the worst of these conditions in lead mining districts of allendale stanhope and middleton deaths labeled as consumption and asthma respectively accounted for 48 54 and 56 percent of deaths right so, you know, in this case, consumption being another word for tuberculosis, it's killing like half the population, you know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like an actual plague, right? Which I think at the time, right, they even refer another term as the white plague. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, basically whatever the occupation, just put asthma after it and 
you can you know sort of find these references um, uh, going all the way into the early 20th century right uh, I believe in Seattle you found people having cedar asthma. cedar asthma <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah Seattle of course sort of built in those early days um, on logging and so Seattle's a logging town and what do you what do you do with all that wood once it comes in well one of the big industries that Seattle's known for uh, is creating cedar shakes and shingles shakes go on the side of the house shingles go on the roof uh, and the factories in which those were made were also poorly ventilated and so you had just a massive amount of cedar dust in the air that um, working people and the unions that they formed are constantly arguing and pushing for better regulation around. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sort of discussion then that goes on in sort of public health, right, about the cause, you know, in the early days of public health, about the cause of tuberculosis, right, you know, biological versus environmental, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, so the early days, uh, we're talking here now before germ theory, um, the explanation for the spread of disease that that folks were still living in at the time that Marx and Engels are writing. Um, and it explains why we would call things then potter's asthma, cedar asthma, you know, miner's asthma. Um, it's sort of all based around the idea that disease comes from miasmas, meaning bad vapors. Um, bad vibes, maybe. Bad vibes. It's a vibe check, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But from bad vapors, uh, bad air, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, oftentimes thinking that it came from, um, you know, sort of unclean water, like standing water, um, Mm -hmm. or trash sitting around and the vapors that came off of that trash. Um, You know, not exactly correct in terms of, you know, getting us close to, say, the vector of disease around brown bacteria. And yet um, there's something important about about the fact that what miasma at least implies is that the environment one lives in mm-hmm. is crucial to their health. Um, that That where you live, where you work actually does matter to health and so uh as germ theory is developed and as uh ultimately the tuberculum mycobacterium is discovered we start to shift away from uh, a scientific community that believes that environment has any effect Mm -hmm. on the spread of disease um, and moves quite conveniently for capitalism, I would say, towards a theory in which it's all about bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about that tiny little germ and who has it in a way that um, is going to really minimize the importance of, of environment um, and with environment to things like class position mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as an understanding of, of disease. And so as much as germ theory is often talked about as a real advancement mm-hmm. um, for modern science and, you know, modern medicine, it also represents a, a true narrowing of the understanding of how holistic disease is, how much of our lives it affects and how much of our own lived experience affects um, whether or not we get disease whether we become simply carriers or whether disease kills us well and sort of like uh any scientific 
fact or advancement, right? It has a neutral character and how we choose to interpret it or act on it, right, is the politics of it, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, one of uh, the scientists that I discovered in my research, um, really cool guy, I was actually just Wikipediaing him yesterday. Apparently he and uh, Richard Levin also, along with two other Marxist mm-hmm. biologists, created a fake Marxist biologist named Isidore Nabi and used him to um, make fun of E.O. Wilson <laughs> via scientific uh, journals. They actually got a biography of him posted in the American like um, sort of list of biologists, which is like yeah. a peer-reviewed list of yeah. actual real biologists that apparently they don't check all that hard. Yeah. And so or for years... biologists don't like E.O. Wilson. That They were like, yeah, go on. <laughs> so for years... Uh, uh, they they were attacking yeah. um, genetic determinism, Dawkins, Yo Wilson yeah. through this. But anyways, uh, that's R. C. Lewontin. Um, yeah, and R. C. Lewontin, he's a veteran of the original posting wars, right? Yeah, <laughs> in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so he says, uh, and I think this is such an interesting quote. He says that scientists do not begin life as scientists, after all. Uh, but as social beings immersed in a family, a state, a productive structure, and they view nature through a lens that has been molded by their social experience. Um, and so here, Lewontin is is arguing to us, right, that that science is not some pure mm-hmm. outside of our you know lived experience kind of thing, and therefore not outside of capitalism. That yeah. as we are talking about the creation, the development of germ theory. We want to understand the trajectory of germ theory and how it's going to shape and frame um, the treatment of disease, in our case, the treatment of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. It's going to in every way be wrapped up in capitalism. Yeah, and it's, you know, uh, just to hammer this home one more time, right, it, it's important to understand because I think there's been created sort of a modern cult of science, right, this idea of like, well, it's just facts, and if we just stick to the facts, we'll be fine. Andrew Yang sort of represented this in the primaries, where he's like, you know, math is pure because it's it's just numbers, uh, you know. But no, uh, uh, you know, science fucking rocks or whatever Facebook page can explain how the same scientists who are working in the purity of science were able to create both the hydrogen bomb and the gas chamber, right? <laughs> you know, yep. that there is this other thing that we just don't want to talk about, right? Which is the politics and the political environment and the decisions that they make, right? Uh, so, yeah, Lawanton, you have in your in your uh, dissertation, right, this great quote from Lawanton, too, about tuberculosis in particular, which I think is uh, really fantastic. Yeah, so he basically says tuberculosis was... In the first case, a disease rooted in a particular historical development, and he says that it's a product of unregulated 19th century competitive capitalism, unmodulated by the demands of labor unions and the state, meaning that it's this disease that runs rampant um, through urban industrial populations in the 19th century. In this moment before uh, labor unions really push for better working conditions and ultimately force the state uh, in many places to to honor that demand uh, and change working conditions, change living conditions, um, change wage structures in ways that allow working bodies to be healthy enough to fight off mm-hmm. the bacterium. Um, yeah, so 
tuberculosis, it's not just like a disease that uh, like you cough on me and now I have it and now I'm going to immediately show symptoms, right? No, I mean, really, like most diseases, uh, you can have the tuberculin bacterium living in your body mm-hmm. for months, for years, show no symptoms, um, at a certain point show symptoms. Or live an entire life, honestly, with this bacteria inside your body, transmit it to others, potentially, while never facing any of the consequences yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, at this point, that's such a, a concern with tuberculosis that healthcare providers um, are required to get tubercul- tuberculosis um, tests before they're verified to work and mm-hmm. if they're they're found to have it in them and oftentimes people find they oh yeah. I, I have tuberculosis <laughs> I had no idea uh, you know then have to go on a course of meds which by the way to the tuberculosis uh, re- regime of um, medication is still really terrible it's still about a year-long mm-hmm. um, set of medicines that you have to take uh, we had a friend um, who had to do that a couple years back as they were getting ready to to sort of join the medical field and it's a year of taking this medication and and not being able to drink at all so it's it's a little bit of a bummer but yeah uh this person was a great example of somebody who you know had been living with tuberculosis in their body for who knows how long and had no idea because they never showed any symptoms yeah and and to give people an idea right uh tuberculosis is actually incredibly widespread i think like the estimation is worldwide it's like a third of all people have it i think in the united states it's like maybe an eighth or something and at the time of the progressive era when you're looking at i think they're uh, they kind of were working on the assumption about half of all people had it right so yeah. this is not like it's widespread as in like one in a thousand like it like there's a good chance if you're listening to this you have it <laughs> <laughs> yep, one, one and two. Yeah, better odds than any, uh, like, Vegas game you're ever going to play, right? <laughs> um, but the thing is, it, you know, it's not enough for a bacteria to be in your body or something. It needs an environment, right, inside your body that's... That's you know, conducive to yeah. the spread of the disease. Yeah. Um, and, and like so many other bacteria, right, that, that's a body that's been weakened, right? Mm-hmm. Um and if we think about, you know, everything that we know, even on the surface level of, of what industri- capitalist industrialization looked like, mm-hmm. it was the perfect environment um, for a disease like tuberculosis to just run rampant. So if we just imagine um, even just Europe, you know, what Ingalls and Marx are describing, a place where you've moved in the last um, two centuries, three centuries, from spread out commons with peasants working on them, mm-hmm. um, living certainly dull, often lives filled with drudgery, um, sometimes brutality, but also because they were subsistence farmers, uh, oftentimes a pretty hardy diet mm-hmm. by comparison with what we see in the mid to late 19th century. Um, and don't live all that close to that many other people, mm-hmm. we shift from that um, to tightly packed cities that in no way were prepared for the number of people that were going to swarm and flood into them. So folks living in cramped conditions, with poor ventilation, um, working in awful conditions, and a whole host of of 
folks who are not the working poor but the unemployed mm-hmm. poor as well mm-hmm. um who are you know massively underfed mm-hmm. undernourished and so this perfect conditions for a disease that had been around to just sort of spring up and overtake a population mm-hmm. um yeah when angles so, uh describes the food in the markets in london it's it's quite the read uh i wouldn't be eating while you do it but it's, uh, yeah i know. mean when we you know we go back to our bakers and we talk about the fact that you know <laughs> england has to the working class has to push for laws that make sure that no more than something like 20% of a loaf of bread is made up of detritus that is not wheat flour. Yeah. Like this is the world we're living in that your bread, which should be like the simplest, least adulterated food, right? It's, uh, it's grains and water and that's it instead is sawdust, mm -hmm. plaster, whatever's around lead based things. Um, yeah. yeah. Whatever's around, which typically is, uh, shit and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, imagine buying a loaf of bread that says, Hey, it's actually 80% bread. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, what we're talking about here is we're talking about, um, sort of the, the rapacious greed of what becomes the capitalist class, right? They Mm -hmm. unfeelingly close off the commons, um, force the poor, out of you know off the land that they'd lived on force them into cities um force some of them when those cities get overcrowded um you know to the americas Mm -hmm. (laughs) all over the place uh but it's as sort of renee and jean dubois describe in their book the white plague um it's this passion for financial gains that made acquisitive men blind to the fact that they were part of the same social body as the unfortunates who operated their machines Tuberculosis was, in effect, the social disease of the 19th century. They also, um, like Lewontin say, perhaps the first penalty that capitalistic society had to pay for the ruthless exploitation of labor. And so what um, the Duboises are pointing out here, right, is that this is a disease that is certainly overwhelmingly afflicting afflicting the poor um, of the time. And yet, you know... Mm -hmm disease spreads where it will and so what has started as a crisis for the working classes for the poor um is quickly Mm -hmm. going to become a crisis for the middling and ruling classes of europe um the united states yeah etc yeah and before we we're gonna jump to that in one second before we get there i just want to once again just hammer home on a point here right of uh Again, for those who believe in the cult of progress, right, that you were just uh, on the unending arrow of progress here. You know, what you're describing, right, was a period of European history where there was a significant decline in life expectancy and things like that to the point of uh, Mike Davis in his uh, book, Late Victorian Holocaust, talks about how when the British get to the Indian subcontinent, that the average Indian peasant is actually living significantly longer and better than the average European, something the British quickly ameliorated. (laughs) Uh, And so as capitalism spreads, you know, it's not just the filthy Europeans, right? As it spreads into other areas, we see this similar drop uh, in life expectancy, um, you know, and uh, away with all past, there's this image of china before the revolution of just the wheelbarrows of corpses right you know uh, in in the sphere under british rule yeah yeah so cool um 
so so yeah so uh the poor are dying the conditions that they're being placed in. this isn't just people being killed right i mean there's people who are dying because of the actual actual conditions of their labor right uh and the wealthy now are maybe getting a little nervous <laughs> yeah they're they're getting quite nervous in fact um they don't seem to be able to to do anything about the fact that they're now dying mm-hmm. of this disease as well um and i think it's important for us to understand that fear of the spread of tuberculosis the effect it's going to have on their body as being wrapped up in a lot of other fears that um the capitalist class and really sort of their mid-level managers many of these members of the the middle class are concerned with at the time mm-hmm. um they've unfeelingly brought all of these people together in cities because the demands of their new economic system require it mm-hmm. um and yet they really haven't thought seriously about what they're going to do mm-hmm. with all of these people in one place um a- and i mean that both in in this case in terms of sort of health uh, <laughs> in terms of um keeping people alive um but also they haven't thought about social control mm-hmm. um and so their anxieties as we move towards the end of the 19th century are not simply about the spread of disease. Um, they're about the control of the working class writ large. Yeah. And so they have this anxiety about urbanization, right? You know, uh, one that they like, you know, seem to have not gotten over, but <laughs> maybe it's only intensified. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, you know, what we want to understand is the context in which tuberculosis is on the rise is also a period in which labor struggle and class struggle is is heightening, too. Mm -hmm. Um, So these crappy working conditions, the crappy food that they're being fed, uh, working people aren't taking this um, laying down. Marx and Engels, of course, also describe the um, the rebellion and the resistance of working people of the poor against these conditions um, and so you've got this growing urban working class then um, that is fueling the labor movement it's the other consequence of bringing people together mm-hmm. is it actually allows them to build bigger movements than they'd built before um, in peasant revolts um, and so in many ways, what we see is our industrial capitalists more and more drawing themselves, thinking of themselves in the same sort of besieged way that we saw, um, you know, the slave owners of the old South describing mm-hmm. their position. Um, they they believe they are the masters and they believe they have a, a right uh, to be the masters of society. And yet they see themselves as under siege. They see themselves as surrounded by enemies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they are, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. enemies of their own creation. Um, and and so they, in this moment, refuse to take any responsibility for the deteriorating cor- conditions of the working class. Um, but they need an answer mm-hmm. for how to solve this problem, um, the social problem and the disease problem. And this is where um, where germ theory and a scientific sort of understanding and analysis of disease is, is really going to work in their favor. And this is where, again, we want to remember Lewontin, the idea that the scientists that are going to be upheld by mm-hmm. ruling institutions, um, by the capitalist class, are going to be ones who come up with ideas 
of the vectors of disease that match the interests of the ruling class. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, lucky for them, there's going to be uh, this other new science that's going to, you know, dovetail with their germ theory of eugenics. And when you say upheld by the ruling class, you mean this in the most literal sense of like the Harriman railroad family uh, fortune basically being donated to Cold Spring Harbor Labs to create the eugenic records office right uh the rockefeller foundation uh funding you know like literally giving them money to like promote eugenics uh the the whole other story yeah um and the harrymans in particular are um crucial to that development in the united states the rockefellers and the rockefeller foundation Mm -hmm. um really their goal is to spread eugenics and uh, negative uh, negative eugenics mm. around the globe and so most of uh, the Rockefeller Foundation is about funding work in uh, Latin America and the global south as a mm-hmm. way of spreading it so so their work tends to be a little more far afield but with the same idea of upholding um, eugenics ideas of of mm-hmm. health uh, of race mm-hmm. of science um, well, this is where the idea of uh, race suicide comes from, right? The sort of concept of uh, the stock in the United States was the genetic stock, although they weren't using genetic now, they would say the germplasm of American stock is rapidly declining and that this is a race suicide that has to be controlled for, uh, you know, they generally leave like a dot 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 after controlled for although there were some discussions about mobile gas vans and things like that in 1910 uh, yeah. <laughs> luckily that never came to pass anywhere right no of course not <laughs> um, but yeah i mean i think what's important for us is we're talking about um, tuberculosis is understanding that this new science of eugenics uh, is incredibly wrapped up in the science of tuberculosis and the science of um, the control of the spread of tuberculosis. That the um, that the thrust of um, tuberculosis control uh, is going to be backed by eugenic science. Yeah, and those same ideas that uh, controlling degenerative, as they would call them, populations, mm-hmm. um, is going to be crucial. To controlling the spread of tuberculosis and so there's this view particularly in the urban environment of uh you know that parts of the population are diseased those parts are degenerate right and that that is basically determined by class (laughs) by class and by race um of course yeah um so how did uh, so given sort of all this background that we've been building up, uh, you were looking at tuberculosis control in Seattle in the Progressive Era, so about 1900 to 1920 ish is sort of when we're talking, right? Yeah. Um, how one how did people view this sort of urban crisis and tuberculosis uh, in Seattle at the time? You know, and by people, of course, I mean uh, wealthy people. <laughs> Uh, wealthy people are pretty freaked out uh, by by the early 20th century Um, Seattle really hadn't done much about the disease until the 20th century Um, and I think it's important to 
to mention that, you know, there's there's something that's about to happen in Seattle that that might be where some of this concern comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, so Seattle is a rapidly expanding city, early 20th century. Um, it's competing with um, Tacoma at the time still for sort of preeminence <laughs> as, you know, the northwest city. Uh it has pipe dreams that I think still exist today that somehow it's in competition with San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, as nobody, to nobody's, which told, city. nobody's told San Francisco about this <laughs> yeah. yet. San Francisco <laughs> not sweating it. Um, but so, so you have this sort of run on the part of the city fathers at the time of, of Seattle to, to make Seattle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seattle has money coming in because of the gold rush. It, mm-hmm. it has established itself as sort of the launch point to, um, to Alaska, which means that business is, is thriving, business is booming. Um, and yet there's a desire to be seen as a legitimate city, mm-hmm. right? To be seen um, as a place not simply for crusty loggers mm-hmm. and, um, you know, claim jumpers, but instead to, to be a place that is cosmopolitan, uh, you know, uh, Seattle's nickname at the time is the Queen City. Mm -hmm. trying to give themselves that sort of air of panache. Uh, And so one of the big things you could do at the time, right, to establish um, that sort of cultural hegemony was a World's Fair. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so you have the Great White City at the Columbian Exposition in 1893 in Chicago. Uh, These World's Fairs become these sort of important sites for both the cities that they're in, um, establishing themselves as places of uh, centers of culture, centers of industry, centers of commerce. Uh, and then they're also really important to the imperial project mm-hmm. of you know the United States, Britain, and Europe. Uh, they're places for these colonial imperialist powers to show off their wealth um, and oftentimes to very starkly juxtapose what they see as their civilization um, against the uncivilized masses of the places that they're engaged in colonizing yeah and and uh, i know you even use some of this material now for your your current job teaching in high school but like what what were some of the exi- so we're talking about the 1909 yes Alaska, Yukon yeah we're talking about right? seattle getting ready for what ultimately becomes the 1909 alaska yukon pacific exposition which they'd hoped would happen in 1905 and they yeah. actually don't have disease mm-hmm. uh under control enough to host yeah. affair in 1905 <laughs> so so disease so, for them is really important it's tied yeah. up in in all of these issues about what this city is going to become and what it can't become mm-hmm. if it's seen as a gross place you can't travel to yeah because everybody's sick and dying yeah and uh so what were some of these exhibits that they were showing uh at the 1909 so um fair. at the aype in 1909 um like the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, uh, the St. Louis World's Fair. Um, you also have them in Paris and London around the same time. You have these sort of grand, beautiful buildings built um, that house a country in each of them. So each of the major European powers gets their own building. And within those, uh, they get to display sort of all the trappings of of their wealth and culture. Uh, there are also specific halls here in Seattle, uh, there's an entire sort of um, oh, how would you how would you describe it? Not not a mansion, but sort of a a giant 
university style building that's Mm -hmm. a log cabin (laughs) but like a three-story log cabin yeah yeah. uh and that's sort of so that's designated as the um site for learning about sort of the science of logging and things (laughs) like that um there's a science and architecture hall Mm -hmm. uh and so it's a place in those buildings for um the united states for seattle in this case to display its technological innovation uh there are scientific lectures that are given um we would have had you know modern at the time eugenicists giving lectures about race suicide giving lectures mm-hmm. about exactly these things um and so that's one part of a world's fair uh you also have a midway here it's called the pay streak which mm-hmm. would be your spot for getting you know your caramel corn and your ice cream <laughs> playing some fun games uh riding a couple rides um and then you have a whole other section of these world's fairs Uh, which is the section in which you have people of color um, from around the world on display. Mm. Um, And, and I think the the best way to describe that and the setup of it is, is like a zoo. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. This is not for them to necessarily interact with the public and display their culture, but for the public to leer. Yes. Yeah. And and it's set up like a, a, a zoo would be set up with fences Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for for you to walk by and uh, to view uh, the peoples of of different parts of the world, um, and so in some cases these were were folks that were brought in. But really, actually, what we know, and uh, there's a local historian here, John Olivero, who who wrote about this at the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. Uh, these are actually workers. These are actually laborers, and so they're presented as though. They're simply some sort of captives or primitives who don't understand anything and are just sort of penned off. And in fact, what we know is that these were folks that were paid to be there mm-hmm. uh, and paid to act a certain way, often paid to dress in costumes that are provided by mm-hmm. the creators, the white creators of the exposition, not by these people themselves, and paid to present a particular understanding of what Inuit life was like, or mm-hmm. uh, in the case here in Seattle with the newly conquered uh, Philippines, what Igorot life was like in a village. Um, there were indigenous peoples that were paid to come to Chicago um, and mm-hmm. put on shows, right, and, and display their, you know, bygone culture. Um, and so, you know, it's racist <laughs> in every single way. It's racist. And yet it's this interesting um, form of racism that it's also bound up with labor and bound mm-hmm. up with paying people to do this work mm-hmm. um, and so that's a big part of the AYPE here in 1909 and a big part of World's Fairs in general and it's meant to be the way it's set up a stark contrast to those mm-hmm. big white shining buildings where the real science the mm-hmm. real you know technology the real culture is mm-hmm. um, and so much of the way this is framed is hey look at this bygone life that's not going to exist soon mm-hmm. And of course, the implicit 
you know, threat behind that is because imperialism is doing its darndest to commit genocide against these folks. Yeah, it's it's a novelty to be soon wiped out by uh, the onward march of uh, civilization. And progress, right? We're, we're progress. in the progressive era, so yeah. progress, yeah. And so at the fair, you have this stark juxtaposition of, you know, the might and the scientific advancement of modern sort of western capitalism and these you know exhibits on logging and exhibits on science juxtaposed with this image of the you know darker peoples of the world and their primitive lifestyles right it's it's a, a clear eugenic kind of comparison that's being made here too right of the superior peoples and the lesser peoples yeah. but when you went into Seattle, right, maybe this comparison doesn't hold as well. Because what does Seattle actually look like at this time? I mean, now we notice this uh, tech capital full of money that you have to have a couple million dollars, apparently, to rent a room in. <laughs> but what is, what is the sort of uh, class and racial geography of the city look like at the time? Well, I mean, Seattle was an incredibly white city mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and so, oh, Wow, glad that's changed. Yeah, <laughs> drastically. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about um, 95 to 98% white mm-hmm. uh, throughout this period. Uh, of course, that is a drastic shift over the last 60 years due to um, American colonialism and westward expansion and the expulsion of indigenous peoples, including the Duwamish, from their land. Mm-hmm. Um, an important thing for us to note is that it's it's those same indigenous peoples that actually do build the physical structures that become Seattle. So um, first the wooden structures that are burnt down in the fire of 1899 Mm -hmm. and then the brick ones that take their place uh, are built by indigenous folks, by uh, urban native labor that lives just outside of the city because it's not allowed to live in the city. And so to to describe sort of the urban landscape. That's sort of an important point, right? That there is indigenous people still in Washington. They're just not allowed to live in Seattle, right? Yeah. There is even like a, you know, growing or large Asian population, largely I think Chinese at the time, but also Filipino Although they're expelled by. They're also not allowed to live in the city, right? Yeah. Yeah, So our landscape in 1909 um, one is it's still a really quite small city. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they build the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition, where the University of Washington is now housed. Uh, UW actually began at a University and Fourth Street, I believe. It's why there's a University Street downtown. Um, that's the other fun thing about uh, world uh, world's fairs is they're a really great way to. Uh, get a lot of money from the federal government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the reason why UW actually is the campus it is uh, and has sort of the wealth it does is because of the money that was taken from that fair. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and UW currently sits on the, the World's Fair location. Yeah, yeah, that's that, what I'm saying. And actually the, the architecture still, right? building is yeah. is the only remaining building from the World's Fairs. Uh, World's Fairs buildings were not meant to be permanent, but they actually here in Seattle did do their best to make the buildings slightly more permanent because they knew they were going to have to use them mm-hmm. for some time. Uh, that that big log building I was telling you about I think existed until the 1960s and it got really bad wood rot and they had to take <laughs> it down. But so anyway, so so up by where UW is now was empty. So putting the World's Fair out there was kind of strange. Normally mm-hmm. World's Fairs were you know right in the middle of a city. Uh, the problem is that they 
still hadn't really solved a lot of a lot of their class um, issues, a lot of the disease issues by 1909. And so putting um, the World's Fair in the heart of the city didn't mm-hmm. really work. Um, so Seattle, as I was saying, built by indigenous labor. Um, but the, the city fathers, sort of the, the ruling elite of Seattle, you know, they're looking at the East Coast they're looking at European cities, thinking about sort of the slums, the tenements there, and they're like, "Oh, we don't, we don't want to replicate that. That's mm-hmm. gross. We don't want tenement housing." Um, so their answer is to just build no housing for the poor, <laughs> none. Like they just they don't hey, do it. <laughs> glad that's changed. Yeah. <laughs> so so there is some temporary um, lodging in Pioneer Square. Um, so what we're talking about, right, are, are hotels that rent rooms, mm-hmm. provide meals, uh, and those become a place where a lot of sort of the the temporary labor of the city, because we want to think about Seattle as a city that at times has lots of folks in it and at times doesn't because mm-hmm. of the seasonal nature of of the work. Yeah, I mean, these are, I guess at the time, would be called flop houses, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, in fact, the term skid row, which you may mm-hmm. know as From a term... Band. <laughs> oh, skitty bop. Yeah. No, not that. <laughs> I'm hold on. Was that wrong? Our, our listeners are going to kill us. That's oh, actually no. poison. Is uh, it? Eight, yeah, and skitty bop. 18 oh. and life to go would be skid row. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, I feel ashamed. <laughs> but not really because they're both terrible. <laughs> um, so the term skid row, right, as a, as a term for a street in a city that's you know where people are sort of down and out on their luck actually Mm -hmm. comes from seattle Mm -hmm. Uh, so that term was coined and it's uh, named for the street yesler Mm -hmm. here in town because yesler was this really really sort of steep precipitous drop um from the forests above down to elliott bay Uh, and it's called skid row because loggers would skid logs down mm-hmm. Yesler to get them into Elliott Bay to, for shipment. Um, and its proximity to Pioneer Square makes it this place where, yeah, a lot of the poor folks who are sort of moving in and out of the city live. Um, so so that's it for, for housing for the working class. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not a temporary worker and you do live here all the time, there's really not a place for you to live. Um, and the wealthy of the city did their best to discourage people from from setting up life mm-hmm. in the city. And so um, what actually happens is we see the place where the stadiums are now becomes a shack town. And it's called officially shack town. Mm-hmm. Um, it expands as the city um, reclaims land from from the from the Puget Sound by dumping their garbage into the bay and uh building more land but (laughs) but yeah so what you have is a situation in seattle and this would have been the case in 1909 where the working poor of the city have to create their own housing Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there's these really sort of fabulous images of um the creative ways in which people house themselves and so it begins with simple things like you know the back of um, a, a laundry shop somebody takes a few pieces of tin and found wood and kind of forms a lean-to mm-hmm. and lives there um, so there's lots of those all over the city but ultimately what you have I think is is working folks who are starting to organize Seattle is going to become um, as we know by 1919 in the general strike a very radicalized mm-hmm. working city uh, and what you see is working people 
demand and just take uh, ownership of unclaimed land. And that's mm-hmm. that land in uh, Elliott Bay where the stadiums now sit. And they decide that they have a right to permanent housing, or at least mm-hmm. as permanent as they can make it. And so it's called Shack Town, and certainly lots of people live in shacks. But what we want to understand it as is um, a fully functioning neighborhood yeah. with streets, with roads, with names for those streets and roads. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really cool house that somebody builds that has palm trees. I don't know where they got the palm trees from, but this yeah. is like the 1920s, and they've got palm trees out front. You know, people, you can tell by the houses there that these are homes that people have taken pride in mm-hmm. um yeah and they've you, decorated them you know they've they've put filigree where they can uh and more than that uh what we know from the records is that people took care of each each other in these places so um the the star which is an incredibly sort of sensationalist seattle paper at the time um interviews folks who live in Shacktown, and you have loggers who talk about, you know, I feel comfortable going out to find work knowing that when I come home, Mm -hmm. meaning come home, you know, maybe months later, that my stuff's still going to be here, Mm -hmm. that my things are going to be here. Um, And so... I think they have the interview that you quote with like a guy who's like some sort of prospector or something. Yeah. <laughs> and his response, he's like, yeah, I got enough money to live in the neighborhoods, but why would I want to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so really people take pride in their own homes, but yeah. also take pride in this neighborhood they've created. Uh, but hopefully you can see that this is not something that those, those same city fathers, those same capitalists would, would it all be happy about? And this is a place that exists in 1909. And so when we're talking about why, why do you put the exposition north of the city? Mm-hmm. It's because what's south of the city is embarrassing yeah. uh, to, to the wealthy of the city. They, they'd, they'd come up with no plan for what to do with the working poor of the city because ultimately they kind of had this pipe dream that they would have them build the city and then wouldn't need them anymore. Yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, not how capitalism works. Yeah. So yeah, the capitalist class is you know always living this dream that they can just get rid of the working class, but then uh, they need something done. Right? Yeah, and so in fact, you know, um, they routinely uh, in the early days sort of push folks out, and and I know we're going to get into this a little more and talk more in detail about it, but uh, just a, a last sort of little fun factoid: the reason why Seattle sort of is known for houseboats actually begins with the urban indigenous population Mm -hmm. so uh, in particular as indigenous folks they were even less wanted than the white working poor Um, and from the early days even as they were still helping to build the city of Seattle uh, are not allowed to remain on Elliott Bay and so houseboats actually begin with indigenous folks who live in canoes Mm-hmm. so that they can quickly sort of shove off and they'll shove across over to Alki on uh, West Seattle and they kind of move back and forth. And what happens over time, right, is as they themselves also want to build more and more permanent mm-hmm. structures is they build houseboats mm-hmm. that can be sort of rafted across Elliott Bay back and forth. And so our legacy of houseboats and, oh, how cute they are actually is a product of, you know, mm-hmm. American colonialism and, and racism. yeah. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you had found in your research this article from this expose front page in the Seattle Times in 1905 that I think shows how they, how the wealthy view Shacktown, right? And, uh, you know, there'll be some gruff or not appropriate language in here, but I think it's important to understand how they talked about it at the time. 
uh, which is standards of any sort have been left far behind. The obligations of right living have been forgotten by these outcasts as they crawl and scratch over the heaped up city filth, snatching at stuff that any self-respecting hobo would decline to touch. They resemble a pack of ownerless dogs as their homes are more like cheap kennels than human habitations. They go on to describe it as crowded, filthy, and evil-smelling, a place where swashes, negroes, and degenerate whites uh, herd together in these hovels and are producing a race which someday will be a heavy menace to the city. Later, they call it a natural breeding ground for disease, right? So we kind of get all the anxieties of the capitalist class just essentially co-mingling in this one right location, there. right? Yeah, <laughs> and I just want to call out a couple things. One, I mean, that this first part, right, should just feel so familiar mm-hmm. to us today in you know our own particular era of sweeps of um, mm-hmm. homeless encampments um, and the ways that, you know, the complete destruction of the property of these folks is justified because it's trash. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, you know, this piece about uh, the folks that are gathering together, right? And Siwash is a um, slur for indigenous folks. But what they're talking about here, right, is indigenous people, black people, and white people herd together to menace the city. So talking about them living together mm-hmm. um, and what makes the whites degenerate here. Mm-hmm. is their quote-unquote choice mm-hmm. to live in multiracial community with indigenous people and black people. Mm-hmm. And so this really brings us back to that eugenics idea, right, of racial mixing, of race suicide. Any white who would choose to live with people of color as, as a degenerate. Um, and degenerate is a term, it's a scientific term that the eugenicists use to talk about populations that should be completely wiped out. Mm-hmm. So when they're using that term here, we want to see that as a code word and we want to see that as a code word for a group that deserves to not exist anymore, right? Whether that be through forced sterilization um, or or some other means. At the time, literally interpreted as subhuman, right? (laughs) You know, that's what they mean by degenerate, right? Like they've become something below, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think this takes us all the way back to, um, you know, descriptions of race mixing in the you know, early 16th century and the founding of, you know, the first British colonies that when slave owners are talking about the problems they have, they talk about exactly Mm -hmm. this. They talk about this race mixing and what they're going to do to get rid of it. Why? Because they've now suffered several different sort of rebellions Mm -hmm. by white indigenous and black folks coming together and Mm -hmm. throwing off the chains of indenture of slavery Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, killing their masters. And so this is still a social anxiety just, you know, 300 years later. Yeah, yeah. And so how is in this in this city, right? So we have uh, Shacktown down by the water, right, on the tide flats. We have the wealthy up on the hills, right? We have the AYP, uh, AYPE hiding up in the district. Um, how is tuberculosis affecting people in, in Seattle at this time? It's a good question, um, and it's not simple. So, as you were saying earlier, right, as we were talking about, tuberculosis is widespread. It infects a lot of folks. Um, we talked about, you know, people calling it cedar asthma here in Seattle. Um, it certainly is a problem, and as the city grows, it's becoming a bigger problem. Um, the rate of active infection and the rate of death is going up. Um, 
And yet, when we look to working class publications, when we look at the ways that working class people are talking about their concerns at this time, it's not number one on their list. Mm-hmm. Um, they're angry about working conditions and and health conditions are a part of that. Mm-hmm. And yet what they're concerned about is um, unfair wages being driven at work, right? Um, bosses that refuse to accept unions. And in this case too, a city that refuses to allow them to, to even exist or live mm-hmm. in the city that keeps saying that there's no place for them. And so for, for working people, there's certainly some concern about tuberculosis. Um, the Central Labor Council, which is sort of our, our slightly more radical uh, labor organizing group in Seattle, they ultimately do join the American Federation of Labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Central Labor Council actually does ask the fledgling um, Anti-Tuberculosis League of King County to come out and survey these cedar shake and shingle factories and, and help them demand uh, better ventilation. And so you do mm-hmm. have these moments of um, of cooperation. The other thing that is important to note is that uh, for the most part, the the funding for a lot of the tuberculosis sort of control in the city, meaning um, ultimately building a sanatorium, a hospital, providing uh, nurses and doctors to see people, comes from the sale of these little stamps called mm-hmm. tuberculosis seals and most of those are bought by the working class yeah both in seattle and around the world so there is this way in which the working class is concerned about about tuberculosis and interested in funding treatment mm-hmm. um, of the disease um in a way that feels very reflective honestly of of how often when there are disasters, it's a working class that comes together to, to pay for those things, mm-hmm. right? Um, in this sort of mutual aid framework. Uh, yeah. And yet they are not talking about the disease with the same kind of panic that we're going to see the middle classes and upper classes of Seattle talk about this. By, by the time of 1909, the capitalist class and middle classes are freaking out about tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Like there is no crisis bigger mm-hmm. than tuberculosis. And in fact, it's not the number one killer at the time. Mm-hmm. It does become the number one killer for a while, but um, even when it's not, it it becomes the biggest problem in the city for them. Well, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the working class or the people primarily dying from tuberculosis have less concern about it than the middle class, right? So we're talking about uh, middle class and upper classes, like maybe working out some uh, anxieties that we'll just say aren't exactly scientifically based. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, so the thing for us to remember, right, is so this is a a city in which, you know, the the wealthy of the city refuse to even build housing for for the poor. And and this is out of some strange, unreal idea that they'll be able to live lives where they never encounter the working poor of the city. Honestly, now that you're saying this, this is the most Seattle story I've ever right? heard in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just practicing social distancing. Yeah. Um, the, this isn't a reality, right? So mm-hmm. so what the reality is, is that, um, you know, very wealthy people find themselves on the trolley mm-hmm. sitting next to the poor, mm-hmm. heading to work. 
right? That um, that on the streets, the wealthy and the middle classes are walking by all sorts of working and unemployed poor folks who are hanging out. Um, and so they find themselves constantly in contact with a class of people that they had somehow imagined they wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also see, right, with the creation of Shacktown, um, with this sort of public enjoyment of, of life, what little enjoyment there is to have as a poor person people find in Pioneer Square mm-hmm. um, where, you know, there are bars, there's some gambling. Um, it's actually a place where we have a, a lot of queer folks getting together mm-hmm. pretty openly. Um you know, all of that, like in so many places for progressives, is just mm. not okay. Yeah. Um, and so the concern turns quickly and tuberculosis becomes a place to do this through. Yeah. The concern is controlling mm-hmm. the working population. And so there is there is a moment, I think, when we get to the 20th century where in some way at least these middle and work uh, middle and upper class folks realize they're not going to be able to completely distance themselves from the working poor as they thought they might. And so now they have to figure out how to control them. Yeah. And we had uh, talked with uh, Dr. Kevin on Seattle sucks, right. About the history of the, you know, LGBTQ community in Seattle. And one of the things he talks about is at this exact time, right. Uh, you know, the middle class and effort to impose middle class values, right is marching through these uh, vice districts, right? And rounding people. This is when they start enforcing sodomy laws and things like that to try and impose this sort of uh, Protestant idea of sexuality, right? And things like that on this, what they have to see as an out-of-control, degenerate working class, right? <laughs> yeah. So what ultimately... So this disease anxiety is commingling with all these other anxieties. What ultimately does the city decide to do about tuberculosis in Seattle? So the early days begin with um, sort of a conglomeration of some of the wealthiest in the city, led by uh, Horace Henry, who's a railroad magnet. Uh, If you've ever been to the Henry Art Gallery, that's Mm -hmm. all his stuff. Collected a lot of nice things. Um, Starts with a, a small coalition um, sort of putting some money behind some initial tuberculosis control measures. Very quickly, um, by by 1909, they realize that um, they can't take care of the problem. Mm-hmm. Largely because they're not committed to doing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they pretty quickly raise some money for a hospital and they're like, yeah, um, City of Seattle, you got to take over because like, we're done. Yeah. Uh, and so what they move towards actually is, is an extraordinarily centralized um, and and really autocratic, I think is is an appropriate term to use, uh, form of tuberculosis control. And, and our autocrat um, in office is Dr. James Crichton, mm-hmm. um, who comes into office as the, the city's health commissioner. Um, and he's given a really massive amount of power to wield in the city. Um, through this office of, of health commissioner. Um, so one of the big things he does that has nothing to do directly seemingly with with health, which we would think of, right, as, as again, setting up clinics, getting this, um, this new sanatorium, Furland, that they build underway, 
but one of the things that he does quite regularly um as a part of his job and has full power um, including police power to do so is raising Shacktown just mm-hmm. burning it to the ground yeah, yeah. Uh, and he does by, it by more raising, than once raising with a z right? I do <laughs> yeah, mean raising with a z yeah. um and he's praised for this so yeah and and his doing this is actually what makes him so popular so he does it in his first month of office um prepares orders for demolition of any as it says any he's able to do this by saying that any building that is not connected to the sewer which of course the city had not connected any of Mm -hmm. these buildings to their sewer system in much the same way now that there have been so many legitimate um homeless encampments that could have easily been connected up say with Mm -hmm. um trash and recycling and the city refuses to and then calls them right a public health menace because Mm -hmm. nobody's collecting the trash yeah this is uh how the city essentially turns their refusal to provide infrastructure into a personal problem Mm -hmm. right and one that costs them far more money now Uh, but yeah so so any building not connected to the sewer um was one that he wrote a law that said he could burn it down and and he did um they condemned 686 houses in that first burning um you know this was massively huge for the working people that lived in these neighborhoods in the same way that it's it's so devastating to the poor of seattle when this happens to them right we're talking about everybody's things being burned mm-hmm. um well you know imagine if you live and i mean Shacktown's an enormous neighborhood at, at one point i think it reaches maybe five thousand homes but like you're living in this neighborhood and all of a sudden the city shows up and just starts burning down whole blocks <laughs> you know just going house to house just burning it down right you know i mean this is apocalyptic right yeah um and so just a line here from the seattle times that again feels so reminiscent of where we're at now so after ample arrangements had been made to care for the deserving poor and those ill the torch was applied and these miserable structures were burned to the ground thus ridding the city of a slum district more serious than many cities have had to contend with um so again that that deserving poor line Mm -hmm. here the idea of, of who has a right to any sort of services um also the fact that this happened in much the same way that the raids happen now during the day which mm. is an implicit acknowledgement on the part of city officials that these are folks with jobs mm-hmm. and yeah, that yeah. you can burn down or destroy their structures during the day because they're at work yeah yeah you're at the same yeah. but at the same time that you then yeah. call them the unwashed masses who refuse to contribute to society yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and you say all of this and it's said today as a public health concern, right? Well, we can't have this because the mm-hmm. garbage is piling up and yeah. that's a public health concern. It was the same thing at this time. It was, well, we can't have this. They're not hooked up to the sewer system. Mm-hmm. And so it's a public health hazard. Yeah. They're not hooked up to the sewer system. Uh, could you hook us up to the sewer system? No. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, it also, it's the same mania they have today too, right? Of the, you know, right here in the Seattle Times, right? Uh, they ridded the city, uh, you know, you rid the city of this, you know, menace, right? This you know, slum district. And the thing is, uh, it's not like the people vanish once you burn their house down, right? So literally, you know, in your dissertation, right, you find references a year later, right, 
of Shacktown existing and actually being larger than it was in the past, right? Yeah. Because it turns out capitalism keeps creating poverty, <laughs> whether you uh, try and burn it away or not. I mean, I, there seems to be a sim- similar mania today of if we just bulldoze the homeless neighborhood, they'll all go away, right? If we make it as miserable as possible, they'll all go away. Yeah. But these people are serving a function in the city, right? Yeah. If those that individual person isn't there, somebody will be, right? <laughs> you know. Um, and so this is a main part of Crichton's mm-hmm. job uh, throughout his entire tenure as health commissioner. Um, the statistics of the numbers of homes that he burns uh, is in the back of his health bulletin, which he claims is a publication of the department, but he writes every single yeah, part yeah. of it. Uh, a lot of eugenics in there, too. <laughs> there really is. Um <laughs> He actually moves the numbers to the back as mm-hmm. they get larger and larger and larger. Yeah. It, it does start to become um, potentially a little embarrassing how many mm-hmm. houses they're burning. Well, yeah, because I mean, the question would always be if you're burning so many houses, how come you're burning more next month, right? Like, you know, you're obviously not solving anything. Right? Yeah. You know, uh, I, will, I will say, having looked at some of these health bulletins, uh, I do have feel some kinship with Crank because he has a legitimate crank. Like, <laughs> he is a crazy person with an axe to grind. <laughs> he is out there to grind it. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Um, he, he interestingly, um, he's the one who also comes up with the the plan for the dumping garbage into uh, into the the sound in order to expand the mm-hmm. the land of of Seattle. Um, and it is a technique that, that actually spreads around the world. So, you know, the Netherlands should, I guess, thank Dr. Yeah. Crichton for helping them figure out how to uh, dump stuff in the ocean to make more land. Yeah, I mean, you know, looking at your dissertation, at your research about this guy, I mean, he is probably singularly more responsible for the geography of Seattle, the modern geography of urban Seattle than any other person. Yeah, I mean, it's Nobody him. in the city knows who he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, because really the, the one that always gets sort of the popular nod if you're interested in urban geography is um, uh, the architect that blasts the, the hills down. I can never mm-hmm. remember his name. But yeah, the guy that, that does mm-hmm. all the regrading. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Crichton is the one who's like, oh, after you knock the hill down, fill in the, the holes with trash, right? Yep. You know? yep. And so we like, literally live on a trash heap because of this guy. We do, which um is is part of the issue with liquefaction and whether or not that tunnel that y'all mm-hmm. drive through downtown is actually going to be there after the next earthquake. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, climate change might fill it full of water first. Yep, so we'll that's, see. that's probably true, too. <laughs> uh, we live in good times. Um, so, you know, the so the solution, so you have this crisis, right? This you know, plague, as they call it, of tuberculosis. They have sort of unilaterally decided that it is a you know plague of the filthy pores right which they've, they've kind of connected those two issues right you know they're they have tuberculosis because they're poor they're poor because you know maybe they're poor because they have tuberculosis right you know they've, they've kind of they've made the two intertwine and it's become now a poor removal scheme right yeah uh this of course uh, miraculously does not solve tuberculosis or the existence of urban poverty in Seattle. It doesn't. Well, and something, um, something to say here, I guess, that's important as well. Um, there's not actually a, a cure for mm-hmm. tuberculosis until, um, gosh, I think it's the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong here. Uh, but so all of this period where we're talking about tuberculosis control and tuberculosis treatment 
um, it's important for us to understand that there is a there is no medical cure at the time for this. So yeah, the only no thing we have yeah. is a doctor from the Adirondack Mountains who went and sat in, I guess, an Adirondack chair for a while near Saranac Lake and felt better, decides that mm. the cure is being outside in the cold. Yeah. yeah. And so, so when we're talking about tuberculosis treatment, um, that's the treatment. Mm-hmm. They bundle you up in a bunch of blankets and mm-hmm. put you out in the snow and you sit there by yourself without talking. Yeah, uh, and I, that's that's all that they have um, until well after World War II, um, and yeah, so yeah, I mean, there's like a, it's essentially a fresh air cure, which creates its own industry, right? Because there's the uh, there's people who are like essentially going to Arizona, Nevada, Southern California to sit in the desert, you know, yeah. uh, and in Washington, of course, it's we'll go sit in the cold. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's the idea that you need fresh air so it doesn't matter how cold it is, you still have to be outside. Mm -hmm. Um, So the city of Seattle, at the same time that Crichton is is burning out the poor from um, south of the city, the city does pull together the funds to build uh, what would be at the time called a sanatorium. Mm -hmm. That's different than a sanitarium. Mm -hmm. So sanitariums for... Um, folks with mental mm-hmm. um, illnesses, sanatorium for tuberculosis and yeah. rest cure. So they build Furland, which is up now in Shoreline. You can actually still go see the buildings. It's now a weird kind of culty mm-hmm. um, god place. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The city actually sold it to this um it's uh, Christian King, religious King's Cross. King's Cross. They yeah. sold it to him for like a, a dollar too. It's kind of BS. Uh, it's these beautiful. Wait, sort you of mean they took a large piece of public infrastructure and gave it to a gave private? It, they did organization so for pennies on the dollar. But yeah, up off of Fremont, and I think it's uh, 190th. You mm-hmm. can go see the original buildings. Mm-hmm. So in 1909, uh, they get started. It's originally some small sort of cabins mm-hmm. uh, with two people per cabin. And so really what they have is is isolation and rest, that mm-hmm. people need to be fairly separated from each other so they're not coughing on each other. Um, they need rest, and that includes rest from speaking, so you're forbidden from talking <laughs> at Furland, so it's super fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And and then yeah, they these buildings have big windows that are left open mm-hmm. um, most of the day, so you're just kind of sitting there, quiet, yeah. breathing in air. Yeah, and I mean, um, to the ex- I mean to an extent, right? This this does work for a lot of the patients. So why why does it work, right? Why does it work? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, for a lot of folks, they'd been uh, living in really bad conditions. So Seattle, like a lot of um, early industrial towns, does have a real problem with um, the soot from just people's fires raining back down on the city. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some great images, especially uh, outside of houses that are close to laundries and other businesses that have to burn a lot of wood all day long to keep a fire going, uh, with soot that gathers over the course of, you know, four hours being two inches thick on the ground. Yeah. So, you know, imagine breathing that in all the time again for, uh, our working poor. We want to imagine the cedar asthma, those conditions. Um, 
And then the other thing we want to think about is, is the massive amount of work that these folks were doing. So being pulled out of those conditions and early Furland is created for the poor. So, Mm -hmm. so the city already had a small sanatorium for wealthier folks. Uh, They were referred there by their doctors. It was a private facility and their own doctors took care of them. So Furland is a public establishment Mm -hmm. and it is created for the poor of the city. Uh, So imagine being poor imagine being sent to a place where you have a room to yourself or maybe you share it with one other person Uh, the air is clean you're not Mm -hmm. breathing in soot all day long Uh, and the meals that you're provided um, are are very bland and gross sounding Mm -hmm. but they do meet far more of the nutritional requirements than perhaps the meals you've been getting your entire life Mm -hmm. Um, and so you see people look like they're improving right Mm -hmm look like things are getting better uh, because for a lot of them, these are the best conditions they've lived in their entire lives. Um, And so it's why the rest cure can look like it works. Now what we see is that as labor demands better conditions outside of the sanatorium Mm -hmm. and gets them, the numbers actually flatten out. And so by 1924, um, the mortality rate in the city that has been going down sort of Mm -hmm. just stays at a certain level. And so we see, I think, a point at which um, there's only so much the rest cure can do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does. It looks in the early days like it's working and that it's it's solving this crisis that the middle class Mm -hmm. and upper classes think they're dealing with. Yeah, and they've, you know, uh, perhaps self-servingly created this illusion of, look, you know, we have this sanatorium where people are receiving world-class care, and now they're getting better, uh, whereas maybe a normal person would look at that and be like, hey, maybe people didn't live in the midst of, like, all the pollution of the city, because, <laughs> of course, the pollution of the city isn't raining down on the wealthy neighborhoods, <laughs> it's raining down on Shackdown, right? Maybe if they didn't live in all the pollution of the city, maybe if they weren't working, like, you know, 16-hour days, and... Uh, maybe if uh, they like ate food, <laughs> weren't malnourished, uh, you know, maybe that's the actual answer to this, right? And uh, and it turns out that yeah, as the labor movement cr- improves working conditions, that is in fact the answer, right? Like the labor movement cures tuberculosis. Yeah, or at least <laughs> at least does as good a job until there's um, you know something that's going to eradicate the bacteria in your body mm-hmm. with it raising conditions enough that the disease for at least more people becomes something that lies dormant in their bodies as Mm -hmm. opposed to sort of wreaking havoc on them. Um, And so Furland, you know, it continues for, you know, maybe a decade or so at this pace, right? But then it sort of changes its clientele, right? Yeah. So something big happens uh, in 1919 i can't remember what it is i don't think anybody can (laughs) what what could it be uh so you know in 1919 the city's working class goes on strike Mm -hmm. city holds a general strike that lasts five days um sparked in large part by a refusal to support Um, the the United States imperial project of helping the white Russians to defeat the Russian revolution. So it begins with our ILWU, always one of Mm -hmm. our more radical unions, refusing to load supplies um, for the United States and their allies Mm -hmm. on a ship headed for Vladivostok. Mm -hmm. Um, They refuse to load that stuff because they're in support of the Russian revolution like so many um, American workers were at the time. 
and the strike spreads from there and it's it's both about sort of this international context but it's also about the very intensely local context of how shitty wages are Mm -hmm. how bad working conditions are the fact that a lot of these people's homes are being frequently burned to the ground by a city that refuses to acknowledge that they have a right to live here um and so so people walk out in mass uh, i think it's a hundred thousand yeah. people go on strike in the city of seattle which seattle is yeah. a city of only maybe two hundred thousand people at the time so we're, yeah. we're talking about a huge strike yeah the mayor literally flees yes. the city. mayor olhansen <laughs> leaves the city yeah. uh calls in the national guard yeah to help him come back into the city he writes a very hilarious editorial for the New York Times about how if he has to go in with a shotgun and shoot every striker, he's you know he's going to retake the city. I mean, people don't. Yeah, I what if you grew up in Seattle, you might not even know this ever happened. But I mean, certainly people don't understand the mania. Uh, you know, they were at Fort Lewis trying to raise an army to retake Seattle. Uh, yeah. You know, the workers' organizations had created all the infrastructure of the city, right? They were delivering mail. They were delivering food. And yeah, and, and I think that's an important thing for us to, yeah. to remember. So it's a short strike. It's only five mm-hmm. days. And yet um, life in the city doesn't stop. So, so of course, the these upper middle class folks, these wealthy folks, Mayor Hansen, who's fled the city, are freaking out. And yet the city is continuing to run mm. um, massive collect- collective kitchens open and are feeding people, I'm sure, better than they'd been fed ever before. Mm-hmm. As you're saying, the mail continues to be delivered. So it's it's a strike against the capitalist class, uh, but a strike that keeps the working city running and keeps people, mm-hmm. um, you know, supplied with the things that they need. Um, and so it's a practice for those five days in what collective living could look like on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a really, you know, when if you ever read sort of the way that Anna Louise Strong or other folks write about this time, they write about it with such fondness because it really felt so different to be in the city for those five days, living in a, a city that for once accepted working people instead of doing everything possible to... Yeah. Um, wipe them from existence yeah Um, yeah the problem is is there's 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 gonna be a reaction to this yeah when the strike comes to an end um um yeah i mean you know they were imagining something bigger than just uh you know higher wages or something so yeah this reaction comes uh, James Crichton is sort of still involved a little bit in city politics and sort of towards the head of it but uh, you know one of the reactions is to attack minor- you know, the, what little minority communities exist in the city and things like that but the, but the public health reaction what's, what's their sort of reaction to it so the public health reaction is quite drastic um, Furland and the resources of the public health department had really been geared before this towards um, adults and a mm-hmm. sort of working class adult population. Um, and before we go too far into thinking this is out of the goodness of their hearts, we want to remember that uh, Crichton and many other sort of health officials at the time lamented that the true victims of tuberculosis were the um, factory owners and employers mm-hmm. of Seattle who lost days and days worth of wages from employees <laughs> being sick. And it was actually a, an important way that they got Furland built and mm-hmm. got wealthy people to donate was that this would be a way to win their wages back and actually have the state pay for the care of working people. Mm. And this was uh, original, won't somebody think of the millionaires kind of mindset. Absolutely, those poor, poor millionaires. (laughs) Uh, So 
So that means that the the care, the treatment and care had been focused on ad- adults uh, mm. prior to 1919. Post 1919, that's done. Mm-hmm. Um, there'd been a desire to have a distinction between the deserving and undeserving adult poor mm-hmm. in the days before 1919. The backlash after is that none of the working adults of Seattle are worth saving. Yeah. That if they're going to die, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's their problem. And so what we see is Furland um, no longer being able to get the same level of funding to treat um adults for free which for the most part they'd been doing and so Furland shifts towards uh only taking in people who can pay to be there mm-hmm. um so we shift then to sort of a more middle class population right they can afford to be there our wealthy are still going to private sanatoriums like um the laurel sanatorium down in west seattle um and then what we also see is a shift on the part of uh, the state and uh, nonprofit organizations like the uh, anti-tuberculosis league towards treating children mm-hmm. um, and and this is really important I think when we remember what the rest cure looks like so treating them both at Furland but also creating uh, summer camps for kids to go to when school is out we want to remember that tuberculosis control previously had been about control of the poor control of their bodies um that's going to continue so Mm -hmm. the um the logic here is that by removing children from their homes Mm -hmm. you can train them in the correct ways of health and living meaning you can indoctrinate them to understand the world to understand health and hygiene read eugenics Mm-hmm. From the lens that these progressive reformers want them to understand the world, you can take them away from their parents and the nasty things their parents mm-hmm. might teach them and teach them better. And And I think it's important to say here um, that imperialists and capitalists learn lessons from each other. And mm-hmm. we have to remember that this is coming on the heels of, of things like the Carlisle school, right. Mm-hmm. And the United States at the end of the Indian wars, removing indigenous children from their parents to train mm-hmm. them correctly. Right. That will save the Indian by. Yeah. Yeah. By, uh, you know, killing or save the man by killing the Indian. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, you do and, that by this. And, and so, yeah. And for people who maybe think that, uh, we're sort of maybe putting words in these. I mean, they're pretty explicit about the idea that they are that their goal is to retrain these children. Yeah, right. They're very clear uh, about that. And um, they've tried retraining their parents. Yeah, and, and they've for decided them, they're lost. Yeah, for them, the 1919 strike is a sign that those parents are lost. And so, what they can do is they can save the children. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, I think it's Greg Grandin, right, who has the sort of the concept of like empire's workshop right of the projects that are you know instituted abroad have this funny way of coming back home being revised and then being reinstituted abroad usually a more brutal format just to bring it back home right and i think that uh with tuberculosis control again you know that's one of those things that we kind of we can see some of that connection and so maybe if we can shift a little bit out of Seattle and talk about there there is these international you know just briefly this is international 
uh, public health programs that are going on at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this logic is um, is being enacted all over the world. So, as we were talking about earlier, right, we've got the Rockefeller Foundation in Latin America, um, where, you know, ostensibly they're, they're there to eradicate these problems of hookworm and mm. yellow fever and malaria, uh, and yet such an important part of all of these projects and, and, you know, these are diseases that do have some form of medical treatment and yet an important part of what um, the officials that are representatives of the Rockefeller Foundation are doing is training people, mm-hmm. right? Training them in the proper ways of hygiene um, and then also writing papers, you know, about the origins of disease, Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, labeling what diseased bodies look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Seattle, that looks like the working poor, right? That we that description we read from uh, the Seattle Times, right, about these unwashed masses, this mm-hmm. just ge- degenerate group of whites. Um, it's far more racialized, as we might expect, when we talk about going into Latin America and the global mm-hmm. south. But really the project of this public health work at home and abroad is about labeling what a disease body looks like, mm-hmm. who is a vector of disease and who is not. Um, and, and we want to understand that as being wholly incompatible with who actually gets sick mm-hmm. from these diseases. Right. We know that wealthy people die of tuberculosis. We know that they die of yellow fever and mm-hmm. malaria when they're put into conditions that are as bad as those that create the hookworm epidemics. They mm-hmm. get hookworm too. Yeah. Um, and the thing that's never talked about in any of these cases is the fact that, you know, Panama never had a problem with hookworm and yellow mm-hmm. fever until the United States came in to create the Panama Canal and created an industrial wasteland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that these were not epidemics until industrial capitalism mm-hmm. found many of these places uh, and forced the same types of conditions, right? Poor mm-hmm. working conditions, poor living conditions, um, malnutrition that we see in Seattle with tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation, one of their big things is going into Cuba and doing this sort of research in Cuba. And, you know, in this way, public health becomes a fig leaf, right, for imperialism, right? Because no longer is the problem the conditions that imperialism has created in these countries, the way that imperialism has robbed these countries of resources, of infrastructure, all these things. The real problem is the deficit of, you know, indigenous hygiene practices, right, and things like that, right? So it becomes this very convenient fig leaf for the kind of like disaster that's being wrought <laughs> on the American periphery right yeah absolutely and I mean I think that the other things that are important to sort of note here too right so it's about how the Rockefeller Foundation abroad how even Crichton um, and the Public Health Commission in Seattle at home frame the disease the ways they're able to mm-hmm. racialize um, and and bring class to bear on who is diseased. They, they change the narrative and they change it in ways that still matter now. Mm-hmm. Um, they also in very physical ways, uh, make use of their public health projects to, um, enact violence on the bodies of mm-hmm. the poor 
and um, people of uh, people of color in the global south. And so understanding that testing out dangerous medications is a huge part of what the Rockefeller Foundation does abroad. Um, it happens here, right, to, to, to even working poor whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big part, because we want to not forget that eugenics is such a huge part of the tuberculosis control project, the hookworm control project, mm-hmm. uh, is identifying, locating, quote-unquote, degenerate bodies and sterilizing them. And so yeah. um, all of these projects that are about controlling disease mm-hmm. come side by side with mass forced sterilization uh, of people in yeah. the United States and around the world. So the, the numbers, you know, you can look at um, Edwin Black to see mm-hmm. just how widespread this yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I believe Washington State uh, passes its forced sterilization law in 1909. It's like the third state to do it, too. I, we get on that train early. Uh, I think I looked it up right before I came over. I think 684 or something, I think, sterilizations in Washington. California, though, had over 20,000. Yeah. And was doing it into the 70s. Yeah. Uh, well, in Washington State in particular, back to tuberculosis, uses tuberculosis yeah. where it benefits mm-hmm. them to allow people to die as well. So mm-hmm. um, Washington State has four separate sanitariums that are public sanitariums where um, folks who are deemed... Um, mentally unstable, unfit to take care of themselves. Uh, We're talking about a whole swath of people here, right? Mm -hmm. With all sorts of mental health issues. Some of them simply, you know, issues with refusing to live and be a part of capitalism Mm -hmm. who are getting forced into these sanitariums. Um, There's a, there's one in the North, one in the South, one in the West and one in the East. Uh, And the numbers of people who die in them, uh, of tuberculosis is insane. We're talking like 80% mortality mm-hmm. rates. Uh, yeah. And what we see in this same period that, you know, there's concern in Seattle that we have to make the problem better and we're going to build hospitals is nothing happening in the sanitariums. Yeah. Uh, there's no efforts, real efforts at yeah. isolation, mm-hmm. um, at removing, you know, people who've been identified as having the disease from healthy populations. And so what we see is it in effect... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a program of euthanizing these people yeah, through yeah. tuberculosis and lack of tuberculosis control. Yeah, and I think uh, sort of what we're looking at, right, is public health one, you know, the public health regime by dismissing the question of, you know, economic and political power out of hand in the que- as far as public health is mm-hmm. concerned, they are essentially... They're, they're essentially saying the redistribution of that power is not a solution, right? Well, at the same time, they're dealing with these anxieties that the capitalist class has always had about its own precarious workforce, right? And its own feeling that a certain amount of it just shouldn't exist uh, through, you know, plans of sort of soft eradication, right? You know, eradication through neglect, right? Eradication through underfunding, etc right which i think you know as we sort of wrap up uh i kind of want to bring that to the more modern era and i understand that you didn't write about this but it's uh certainly something that you you're familiar with uh uh through your teaching and stuff which is the aids crisis that begins in the 1980s right that i think even though some of the details have changed the song a lot of which seems to remain the same right 
Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking about this as I was sort of reviewing things last night, um, which was that really what was necessary for tuberculosis control in Seattle and I think in other places was at least for some of the initial funding was the capitalist class realizing that they needed some of this workforce to -hmm. not die to work in their factories Mm -hmm. Um, and yet I think what the 1919 general strike teaches us and taught them was that Mm -hmm. they don't need all of them to survive And, and in fact maybe they could get away with more of them dying mm-hmm. um, and that they're fine at least with testing out that theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, bringing us, bringing us up to the 1980s um, and the AIDS crisis, which is an entirely really artificial crisis, mm-hmm. right? There's no reason that the 20 to 30,000 people in the United States that die mm-hmm. of this disease have to. Um, we have clear evidence that the Reagan administration knew about this early enough and, and, again and again and again chose to do nothing um the fact that the only person who did anything was sort of avowed christian c everett coop who's the mm-hmm. um surgeon general at the time who breaks his own sort of uh religious protocol to tell people to use condoms mm-hmm. that's it that's all we get right yeah. there's um there's yeah, no I mean, serious um attempts at it, it, responsibly um trying to control and, and treat um, HIV and AIDS at the time. Well, and really the, the sort of uh, cruelty that we talk about in the progressive era or whatever we see on full display, because it's not just that the Reagan administration does nothing, it's that they actively joke about it. Yep. They think it's hilarious, right? You know? Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's really chilling, you can watch them on YouTube, uh, you know, White House pressers, where there's just one reporter in this entire press pool, which I mean, just shows you how like feckless the press are. But this one reporter who like keeps asking, like, "What are hey, you people doing? People are dying. Like, yeah. we at least acknowledge that this is happening." And you know, the White House press secretary just laughing and being like, "What do you got AIDS? You know, yeah. <laughs> like all this kind of yeah. stuff." And, and what are you gay? And, yeah, and, yeah and, mm-hmm. and the press just laughing, just eating it up. You know, just mm-hmm. the funniest thing they've ever heard. And, um, yeah. I mean, it's beyond doing nothing, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> absolutely. Um, and so it takes us to this issue of, of yeah, by the 1980s, a state um, and the capitalist class that, you know, is that mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. having made that decision that there, there is an acceptable amount of the working class that it's fine to just lose. Yeah. Um, and that also this piece, right, we were talking about earlier, um, I was saying that, you know, the politics of deciding who is diseased matters mm-hmm. and still matters, mm-hmm. right? That the early days, right, of AIDS, the disease was called GRIDS, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gay-related immune deficiency yeah. syndrome. And despite the fact that, that that is not the only population that um, HIV AIDS um, afflicted and that, in fact, we know that it also wasn't a disease just again of the poor mm-hmm. um, tying it to the gay community tying it to the queer mm-hmm. community a community that the United States had been hammering as part of their anti-communist movement since the 1950s uh, allowed for this callousness too Yeah, right yeah. because this was an already marginalized population a population that had already um, been treated with such derision it became acceptable to allow 30,000 yeah. people to die. And it became 
an easy way to assuage the fears of the larger public that, well, mm-hmm. only this group of people gets this. Mm-hmm. And we've already decided they're an undeserving population, and so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, again, the idea that that politics of who is diseased and who is not really matters because it's not how disease works yeah yeah uh, and yet if it's how it works in our minds if it's how we mm-hmm. think about it, it it means that those prejudices are so important to the ways that we think about and and allow for atrocities to happen yeah i mean they you know uh in the progressive era they well knew that every part of the population was dying of tuberculosis but they chose to paint it as one thing right yep. you know just like in the aids crisis uh you know they knew that like wealthy people were coming down with this illness right they just you know didn't care i mean they're willing to let a certain part of their population die too right to just you know to to essentially eradicate another portion of the population Mm -hmm. um just like you know we know that uh coronavirus is not a condition of mm -hmm. being chinese of being asian and yet how effective that has been um in the imaginations Mm -hmm. of just you know being here in the united states um and and I'm thinking about that even on a personal level of, um, you know, as somebody who at least likes to think of themselves as being, you know, an anti-racist activist. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the ways that I, while I was thinking about how messed up it was, the way that um, the disease was being framed, the way that China was being talked about, the way that this just created another opportunity for more china bashing and yet something that i didn't put together nearly as quickly as i probably should have because of the sort of media blackout here was that like oh yeah the disease has been here for like probably just as long as it was there yeah yeah. um we just haven't seen it yet because unlike china we're not testing for it we're not doing and so the ways that it did invisibilize even for me Mm -hmm. that like oh right that's not how like international travel and movement works (laughs) like it doesn't take that long for a disease that's in one place to get to lots of other places And yet how effective that has been in, you know, hampering so many places in the world at this mm-hmm. point from acknowledging and treating a disease. Um, yeah, and, and, and how much how successful um, the United States and the Western world has been in demonizing a, a country that has so far mm-hmm. been the only country to effectively mm-hmm. limit, marginalize and start to now. Um, reverse mm-hmm. the number of cases that are coming in, right? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, again, how state action uh, can effectively paint the picture for people, you know, when Trump's only response to this was to shut down international travel, particularly with Asia, right? You know, he effectively painted a picture in people's heads of this is disease that comes from the swarthy hordes right Mm -hmm. you know uh whereas i mean the irony of course being that the containment of the virus in asia comes from the fact that these countries actually have functional healthcare systems Mm -hmm. and it's you know quickly going out of control in the united states because we don't (laughs) you know um and it's uh it's interesting but i mean you know we see the mania in seattle where you know like you know Chinese restaurants are ghost towns right there's no yep. logical reason why that should be the case but people have internalized the messaging right mm-hmm. they've internalized that 
No, it's not the fact that our public health infrastructure has been allowed to deteriorate for decades. It's not that we refuse to give people health care. It's not that we have a labor system that won't give people days off, right? And that people live literally paycheck to paycheck and can't miss a single day of work. It's none of those things. No. It's the Chinese. Yeah. (laughs) The yellow menace, right, comes back, or the yellow barrel comes back to menace us again, right? Um, And it's, it's... really effective messaging and it's how the state's public health response you know it it it, it again provides the fig leaf for capitalism but you know it also uh, it explains our world to us right <laughs> in ways that are beneficial to some yeah <laughs> yeah um well that's awful um <laughs> you know i guess maybe the coda on to your tuberculosis story is thanks to the wild mismanagement of the AIDS crisis in the United States, the tuberculosis actually came back it in did. the 90s yeah. um, uh, as people with AIDS became particularly susceptible to uh, the illness, right? Um, so, cool. Yeah, and, and that <laughs> it, it, it is a disease that's actually, once you get it and it actually presents symptoms, is hard to get rid of because of how long the course of treatment is. There really hasn't been much advancement since the 1970s yeah. in the treatment of tuberculosis. Uh, and so it requires incredibly strict compliance over the course of a year, which, mm-hmm. again, for working folks kind of difficult Mm -hmm. um access to that is is hard and so it's also a disease that's still kind of hard to get rid of too Mm -hmm. um because there really hasn't been much movement on either finding a potentially more viable treatment or at least making that treatment more accessible Mm -hmm. to people right Mm -hmm. if you provided folks with payment to come and say get that treatment yeah as a public health measure maybe that would be better than doing what the city of Seattle did in the 70s, which was imprison people Yeah, um, yeah. when they had tuberculosis. So that was the fun way they continued to control poor bodies was uh, actually turning an old military hospital, which became the second part of Furland, also in Shoreline. Uh, you can see that one over on 15th Avenue and uh, mm-hmm. 155th Street. Yeah, I believe we used to live right next to it. <laughs> we did. Um, you can go back there and you can still see the old barracks that have bars on them um, and were concrete cells. 100% haunted. <laughs> <laughs> concrete cells that uh, the um, poor males of, of Seattle were forced into when they got tuberculosis so that they would be, quote unquote, compliant with their treatment. And that meant that they were kept there for at least a full year, mm-hmm. sometimes longer. Um, and the city had created laws to make this legal to do this, mm-hmm. to imprison people for having tuberculosis. So yeah. that's a super fun fact. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's bleak. Um, is there any uh, anything else you want to get out there? Uh, or anything you want to plug? <laughs> I mean, I think I'd, taking us back to 1919, it, I think the United States has been incredibly lucky with disease um, mm-hmm. and the outbreak and spread of disease. And I think they have the labor movement to thank, thank for that in a way that they refuse to acknowledge to their peril that um, had it not been for a robust labor movement that demanded better working conditions, um, demanded better wages, with, which allowed the ability right to live in better housing situations would we have seen tuberculosis, things like the Spanish flu in 1918 become even bigger problems? Yes. Uh, And so that says a lot for the world we live in now. Um, 
And so I think it means that when we're thinking about the continued health and what we're going to do as working people, we have to come together and we have to work on this because the health of, of the United States is not owed to some glorious past of being better at mm-hmm. healthcare than we are now. The United States healthcare system has never been worker focused in a way that um, was about ensuring the mutual benefit of all working people and their health. Mm-hmm. Never, right? When we talked about tuberculosis today, we were talking about how bound up that process was with eugenics. Mm-hmm. So it means we have never lived in a state that has gotten this right. Uh, and so we can't rely on returning to some good old days. We instead have to think about what are the systems in place in other places like China could be replica- replicable here and how do we mm-hmm. fight for and make that happen. Yeah, you know, thinking about public health as a collective problem rather than maybe an individual problem. Yeah, and that takes us back to our miasmas, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there yeah. may not be bad vapors in the air, and yet our health is mm-hmm. based on more than simply the germs that live inside of our bodies. And so... You know, wash your hands, don't cough on each other, um, and let's organize. I think that's a perfect place to leave it then. All right, well, Marianne, thanks for uh, doing this interview. That was very good. I don't know if that's going to make anybody feel better, but (laughs) (laughs) that's very good. Uh, And uh, we'll have more of these in the future, so keep your eyes out. (laughs) Thanks. Tuberculosis, tuberculosis, 